For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so if you've been studying Luke with us, you've seen over the past couple of years of the life of Christ, there's definitely been some hostility between him and the religious leaders. All right, and Jesus along the way has won these isolated skirmishes, but it's kind of been like a boxer kind of coming in, taking some jabs, stepping back out, kind of hanging around the ring. There's times where he's hiding out. He's telling people to keep it down. Don't tell who he is. He's, he's delaying. He's waiting. You can see there's power there, but he hasn't fully unleashed it. And tonight, what we're going to see is the gloves are going to come off. We're going to see a showdown here between Jesus and the religious leaders, unlike anything we've seen so far in the book of Luke. If you remember last time, we saw Jesus rode into Jerusalem on what's called Palm Sunday. This is the final week of Jesus' time here on earth, leading up to the cross, a very important week. And here he is, he rides into Jerusalem to the praise of the crowds. They're shouting, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And the religious leaders weren't too happy that Jesus was accepting their praise. Well, Mark tells us that when Jesus got to Jerusalem on Sunday, he went into the temple. And after looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. He was spending the night about, you know, about a mile east of there out of Bethany at his friend Mary and Martha's house. And so Jesus gets to the temple and he would have seen something that looked like this. We looked at this picture last time. This was the temple in Jesus' day. This was a massive structure, 300 by 500 yards. That's 25 football fields you could squeeze into this area. It was originally a mountain that they just put a wall around and filled up with dirt. So it was the highest point there in Jerusalem. And Jesus would have come into this. You know, the temple, when Jesus got there, would have been packed with pilgrims who were there for the Passover. They were supposed to come to Jerusalem once a year. For the Passover, this was a big event. Jews from not just all over Israel, but from all parts of the Roman Empire were supposed to try to make it back. Josephus says there could be upwards of two million there for these events. So this was big time. And this would have just packed to the edges with people going to the temple. You know, the temple was supposed to be a special place. It wasn't where the gods lived, like in pagan religion, but it was a place that symbolically represented God's dwelling place. And people could go there to learn about God. People could go there to make sacrifices to God, to pray to God. This was supposed to be a special place, the focal point of the Old Testament Jewish religion. But when Jesus got there, he was really upset with what he saw. What he saw was not this special, sacred place. What he saw were tables after tables after tables of merchants there hawking their wares at the highest price. What he would have seen would have looked less like this and would have felt more like this. You know, this is a shot of a glitzy mall packed with stores. This is what the inside of the temple would have looked like. There would have been, there would have been various businesses there. There were the money changers. Each Jewish male had to pay the temple tax, but they had to be paid in the interior coins. And so they had to show up. They had to exchange their Roman coins for the Tyrian shekel so they could pay the temple tax. Well, these money changers realized they could mark up that transaction quite a bit because there's nowhere else to go to get these shekels. And so they were making huge profits on the exchange of money. They also, 
There would have been tables selling doves and lambs and cattle, all for sacrifice. And these, these would have been approved by the priests as ceremonially clean animals. You know, you could bring your own lamb for Passover, but you know, imagine you're up 80 miles north of there in Galilee. You're trying to load the family up. You're getting the kids loaded up for the, the walk to Jerusalem. You know, you're trying to find somebody to feed your hamster while you're gone. And the last thing you want to do is lug a Passover lamb, one-year-old unblemished lamb, 80 miles to Jerusalem. That's a, that's a long journey. I don't know if you've ever taken a lamb that far. It gets old real quick, okay? And so you could show up. You could just bring your money. If you had a lamb, you could sell it there and buy one in Jerusalem. But the, the, the guys selling the, the animals in the temple courts, they would sell it at a, a huge markup. You know, it's kind of like when you go to an NFL game and they want you to pay 20 bucks for a hot dog. That is definitely not ceremonially clean. <laughs> That's what it was like here in the temple court. They were, they were gouging people for all they could get. Religion had become big profits for these guys. And so Jesus, he realizes it's too late in the day for me to do anything on Sunday. But he goes and he takes a good account of the temple courts. He's, he's making plans for Monday. And then he heads home for the night. Well, Monday morning, he would have gotten up pretty early for the trip into town. By the time he got there, I'm certain the temple court would have been packed out. And the way I imagine it, Jesus walks up to the first money changer and the guy's like, oh, how can I help you today, sir? And Jesus is like, you can help me by not turning my father's house into the mall of America. Business is closed, buddy. Boom! <laughs> turns the table over, coins scatter everywhere. Goes to the next table, boom, coins scattered everywhere. People are going crazy. Goes down the line, turning tables over. Heads over to where the doves are, boom, turns the table, the doves over, doves are cooing. <laughs> Luke tells us here, he entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. Overturning tables of money changers, Mark informs us, and the benches of those selling doves. He wouldn't even allow anyone carrying merchandise through the temple courts. And so he's shutting down business in the temple. John this is not the first time Jesus has done something like this. John tells us in John 2, early in his ministry, he also cleared out the temple court. That time he got a whip out and he was, he was cracking the whip and driving the cattle out. I mean, some kind of a stampede maybe was happening. I mean, here it doesn't say he used a whip, but he probably did. <laughs> so he is, he's making a scene here. He says, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer. But you made it a den of robbers. Jesus is angry. You know, he says, okay, not only are you coming in here and you're making money off a place that's supposed to be where people come to learn about God? You're defiling this place. But you're also setting up so many booths that there's not even room in here for sincere seekers who are coming here to learn about God. They're turning people away because they crammed a couple extra money changers booths over in Solomon's colony. And he says, and you're turning this into a den of robbers. What's a den of robbers? Well, the, when uh, there was these, these roads leading out of Jerusalem and the roads were lined with caves. Well, the robbers, what they would do is they would find an obscure cave and when they would rob somebody, that would be the place they would stash their loot. So you might hit up several people in one day and then you'd all meet back at the den of robbers to count up your earnings for the day, your, your, your takings for the day, I guess. 
and to compare what you got. And Jesus says, you got, you priests, this is like, this is like one of those dens along the road to Jericho where you get together at the end of the night and you brag about how much you stole from people. That's what I think of you in your temple. This is a different picture of Jesus than the one we often picture. This is not Jesus meek and mild, holding a little lamby, crying, <laughs> watching the notebook. <laughs> I love this part. <laughs> no, this is Jesus powerful Jesus. This is Jesus showing a, a very controlled, intentional display of righteous anger. Righteous anger. That's right. A lot, of, a lot of people didn't even realize there is such a thing. Probably the only kind of anger you have seen is unrighteous anger, if that's the case. But Christianity is kind of unique. It has a category for this. It says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and yet do not sin. So there's a couple ways to violate this commandment. One is by simply uh, showing selfish anger, unrighteous anger. This is the sort of anger that's uncontrolled. It's destructive. It just blasts people just because I'm having a bad day. But the other way is by never getting angry at all. It says be angry and yet do not sin. And so the person who never gets angry at all, that's probably a disengaged, detached unpersuaded person. It's a, really a, a posture of self-protection is what it often is. Righteous anger, what is it? Well, it's going to have a slow fuse. In fact, when God describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he says, I'm the Lord, I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger. It's not that he he's not, doesn't get angry, but he's slow to anger. And so righteous anger, it's, it's going to be slow. There's going to be usually a slow buildup. It's also in response to injustice, unbelief, false teaching. You look at certain forms of injustice, some things you've seen on the news perhaps, some of that should make you angry. When you see injustice in this world, um, <clears throat> false teaching. You see the Apostle Paul getting pretty angry about that at times because of the, it is an unjust. It, it can have such damaging consequences in people's lives. A lot of the anger you see from Jesus at the religious leaders is about their false teaching. It's never from a personal offense. It's not like you hurt me and so now I'm just going to blast you. Okay, remember Jesus said we turn the other cheek when someone wrongs you. No, this is about, this is about wrongs done to other people. It's vulnerable and intentional and self-controlled. This, this episode from Jesus, it was not a spur-of-the-moment thing. You could even see the day before he went in and he surveyed it. This was something that he had coming for a long time. And there's a vulnerability to it, to uh, righteous anger. It's often, it may even done with tears. To angrily come after someone, sometimes it's to break through to somebody who's ruining their life, somebody who's hurting the other people around them and cannot admit it. There might be tears as we plead with the person about the effect that they're really having in other people's lives. I've had people have to do that with me at times. Also, righteous anger is going to be resolved as quickly as possible. The very next verse in Ephesians says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Of course, those words should not be pressed literalistically. I do remember times early in marriage where my wife and I would be in this massive fight, you know, and, you know, we've been at it for two hours and it's three in the morning and we're saying the stupidest things that are making it worse, but I was like, we will not let the sun go down on our anger. <laughs> At a certain point, I realized, look, dude, the sun's been down for about seven hours now. 
you got like 15 more. Why don't you get some sleep, all right? <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's the principle as we try to get it resolved as quickly as possible. We don't sit there for years letting the bitterness build up. And so righteous anger is what we see here from Jesus. And what, we'll, what we see here and really throughout the rest of this study we're going to do tonight, you'll see anger from him, but it's under control. It's based on truth. And it would be classified as righteous anger. He does not sin in his anger. And so in, in this place here, Jesus shuts business down on one of the busiest days of the year. This was their Black Friday, right? This would be like going into Walmart and tipping over cash registers on the, the day after Thanksgiving. This would have been a huge hit financially to the, the religious leaders as well as the merchants who they had contracted out. He also embarrasses and defies the religious leaders for the second day in a row. First the triumphal entry, now cleansing the temple. Man, if there's one thing they do not like is being down two to nothing. These are two huge humiliations for the religious leaders. But they're not going down without a fight. They know the score is against them. They know they're down two zip. But that night as Jesus leaves Jerusalem, they get together with all their brightest minds, all their political strategists, all of the brightest minds of academia, and they hatch plans. They're up till two in the morning, and they are going to be ready for Jesus when he shows up the next day. No more getting caught with their pants down. No more getting embarrassed. This time, they are going to even the score and score some hits on Jesus. You know, when Jesus showed up at Jerusalem on Tuesday morning, this would have been like walking onto the campus of Harvard, and they've got all the department chairs sitting there, having prepared the toughest questions in each of their fields of discipline, ready to grill you in front of everyone on the biggest stage in Israel, the Temple Mount. Well, it says every day he was teaching at the temple. The chief priests, teachers of the law, leaders among the people, they were trying to kill him. Yet they couldn't find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. That was one thing we're going to have to do is, is take his popularity down or get the Romans to go after him. Well, one day, and the other Gospels tell us, it was actually, looks like the next morning, Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news. And his teaching gets interrupted. The chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders come up to him. Tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are? Riding into Jerusalem, cleansing the temple like you're the Messiah or something. What right do you have to come in here like this? Tell us. So Jesus is like, hmm, okay. I got a question for you though, first. You tell me. John the Baptist, his baptism, is that from heaven? Or is that of human origin? So they're like, <laughs> hold on a minute. <laughs> what the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> Whose idea was this? Look, if we say from heaven, they'll say, why didn't you believe in him, right? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they're convinced that John was a prophet. <laughs> God. <laughs> One, two, three, G-freeze. Okay. 
And so they answered. We don't know where it was from. <laughs> well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. <laughs> you see, if they said John was from heaven, well, if they say John, if they said it was from heaven, then he's like, well, why didn't you believe John? If they say it wasn't from heaven, the people would revolt and, the, and Jesus would become even more popular and they would become even less popular because the, the people knew that John was a prophet. Anybody could see that John was one of the greatest, the greatest prophet of the day. And he was sent to prepare the way for Jesus, testified repeatedly about him, which at this point brings the score to Jesus' three religious leaders, zero. <laughs> he went on to tell a parable. You know, a man planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. Well, in the Old Testament, the metaphor of Israel as God's vineyard is a common one. They would have known. He's talking about Israel as this parable goes on. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenant so they'd give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. This was common practice. Rich guy rents his vineyard out to some farmers and then he gets a cut of the proceeds. The tenants, though, beat him up and sent him away empty-handed. Well, he sent another servant. That one they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent a third. They wounded him and they threw him out of the vineyard. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Seems like kind of a weak vineyard owner. He keeps sending people... But when the tenants saw the son, they talked the matter over and they said, this is the heir, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw the son out of the vineyard and killed him. And Jesus says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them for killing the son? Well, Jesus says, he'll come and kill those tenants and give that vineyard to others. God is the vineyard owner, Jesus says. He sent prophet after prophet to the ones who he left in charge, you guys. And what have you done? You've killed every one of them. And now you are going to kill the son. And the owner is not going to be happy. Jesus says, I am the son. I am the son. And when the people heard this, they said, God forbid. And Jesus looked directly at them and he asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? in the scriptures. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118. He says, what do you think that psalm's all about? The one you sing at the very end of every Passover? The one that comes right before the part that you were chanting two days ago, where it says, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord? Jesus says, that psalm is about me. I'm the stone. That psalm has always been about me. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Yes, the sun will be rejected. The stone will be thrown out by the builders. And you don't want to mess with that stone. You drop a stone on a clay pot, the pot breaks. You drop a clay pot on the stone, the pot breaks. 
You want to be on the same team as that stone. And Jesus, Jesus is saying, the stone will be rejected. And I am that stone. Well, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken the parable against him. But they were afraid of the people. In other words, Jesus four. Religious leaders, zero. He scores another direct shot. Well, keeping close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. These are the Pharisees, Matthew tells us. They sent their disciples this time, maybe like Jesus wouldn't recognize the junior Pharisees. (laughs) And they sent not just them, but they also sent a group called the Herodians, which was a a small minority, but it was a, a group of people that were loyal to Rome. A group that if Jesus said anything against Caesar and the Roman government, they were sure to go and report him immediately. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. And here is the brilliant dilemma they posed to Jesus in front of everyone. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and you don't show partiality. You teach the way of God, and it's in accordance with the truth. You don't change your message for anybody. You always speak the truth, even if the Herodians are here. You just tell it like it is, right? Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Oh, they got him! Think about it. If he says yes, pay your taxes, then he's going to drop enough in popularity with the people that they can afford to arrest him. Remember, they thought Jesus is here to overthrow Rome. Now he's going to say pay taxes to Caesar? Heavy taxes? But if he says, no, don't pay your taxes, those Herodians are going to go and report him, and then the Roman government is going to take care of their job for him. What is Jesus going to do? I'm so scared. Well, first of all, Jesus saw through their duplicity. He's not like, oh, they're really wondering about tax law. Well, uh." (laughs) show me a denarius. Somebody pulls one out and he says, whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, Then give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and give back to God what is God's. Boom. Pretty good answer. What does it mean? Well, first of all, what what belongs to Caesar? The thing with Caesar's image on it. What belongs to Caesar? The thing with Caesar's image stamped onto it, right? That coin. So he says, go ahead and give it back to him. But, What belongs to God? It's not as clear from this little saying here, but wouldn't that also be the thing with God's image stamped on it? And what does Scripture say? The only thing Scripture says that's made in the image of God. That would be human beings. Specially created in God's image, set apart from the rest of His creation. And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you need to pay your taxes. That would be one application point for us. Paying taxes to an unjust government even is actually God's will. But he says, yeah, 
give your money to Caesar, but Caesar's not God, which would have been controversial. And what you need to do is your higher loyalty needs to go to God. And God deserves your whole life, you. Nothing less than that is worthy of what we give back to God. The reason God created you and the reason God rescued you, if you're a Christian here, is not for you, but was ultimately so you can serve Him, so you can live your life for Him. And Jesus says that's what you've got to give your whole life for. The thing with God's image on it should be given back to Him. And so they were unable to trap him. And what he had said there in public, he wriggles right off with a brilliant answer. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. That's right, Jesus 5. <laughs> Religious leaders not even have scored a point yet. Well, the Pharisees tag out and the Sadducees tag in. First time we've seen them in the book of Luke. Luke tells us they say there's no resurrection. Um, we do see that, we're going to see them in Acts, which we're going to study next after Luke. But these guys were smaller and, believe it or not, even more powerful than the Pharisees. They had political power, they were old money. They also didn't believe in the whole Old Testament, like, the, like, like most of Judaism did. They only believed in the first five books of it, the Law of Moses. And on that basis, they said, look, there's no afterlife, there's no resurrection, there's no angels, this life is all there is, and the soul is destroyed at death. Which is kind of a convenient theology if you don't want to have to answer for your wicked actions. And so some of these Sadducees, they say there's no resurrection, they weighed in on this, and they're like, we got this. They came with a question. They said, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This was supposed to be, this was back in a time when God wasn't the ideal. His design for marriage was one man and one woman, commitment for life, but back then they did allow for polygamy. And uh, it caused a lot of problems too. But what he said was to, to keep the woman from being impoverished that if, if your brother's wife died, you had to take her on as your own wife and try to have, an, have offspring, and that offspring would get the inheritance rights. And so they're like, so now there were seven brothers. And the first woman, the first one married a woman, but he died childless. And so the second brother married her, and he died childless. And then the third married her, and in the same way, all seven married this woman and died, leaving no children. Marrying this woman, <laughs> not good for your health. If I'm brother seven, I'm, I'm planning my wedding here, okay? I'm going to spend more time writing my will than my vows. <laughs> so they come up with this kind of silly, ridiculous situation, and then finally the woman died too. And they're like, so Jesus, in the resurrection... Whose wife will she be since all seven were married to her? <laughs> Resurrection? It doesn't even work. So Jesus is cool as usual. Matthew tells us he starts off with this. 
Your mistake is you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. <laughs> now, okay, the people of this age marry and they're given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. By the way, the only ones worthy are not people who are really morally good. It's people who put their faith in Christ. He's been clear on that. He says, they can no longer die for they're like the angels. And so one thing Jesus points out is, is a consideration they hadn't even thought of is that in heaven there is no marriage. According to Jesus, there's no marriage. Uh, there's no more having kids when we get to heaven. Uh, a lot of people think no more sex either. Hmm. Which I guess means we should probably get it out of our system now, right? <laughs> it's in the context of biblical marriage is taught other places in Scripture. I used to worry about this a lot when I was single. The only solution I can think is he's got something way better planned in the age to come. But they hadn't even considered there might not be marriage in the age to come. And he says they're God's children since they're the children of the resurrection. But, Jesus says, did you ever notice this? In the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. You only work from the first five books? How about Exodus, the second book? For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is the account in Exodus 3, 6, when Moses is visited by God at the burning bush. And Jesus is like, he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by the way, this is what Jesus thought of the Old Testament. He thought that Moses wrote Exodus. He thought that Moses was a real historical person. He thought that Exodus 3.6 is something God actually said. He also thinks Abraham was a real historical person, and Isaac, and Jacob. Facts that are denied by his critical scholarship, skeptical scholarship, but affirmed by Jesus Christ, and I think that's probably the best reason to believe in the Old Testament, if you ask me. Jesus believed every word of the Old Testament was inspired according to Matthew chapter 5. But he says, did you ever notice the verb tense there? He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to God, all are alive. Yes, your soul will continue on. And he said, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're right here in my presence. And so not only does Jesus, you know, he totally silences these guys. Some of them even started saying, well said, teacher. <laughs> and no one dared to ask him any more questions. So he not only refutes their dilemma about the resurrection, he also proves from the Torah that the afterlife is real, which I think deserves two points. <laughs> Bringing our account to Jesus' seven religious leaders, zero. Are they going to get shut out? And he says, well, since there's no other questions, I got one for you. Why is it that the Messiah, the Savior, the promised one, why is it that he is called the son of David? Huh. Do you ever wonder about that, guys? Because David himself declares in the book of Psalms 
He believed in David too. He believed David wrote the Psalms. David writes this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. A vision David got of God that he was describing where he sees the Lord say to my Lord, sit at my right hand, the place of greatest honor, and I'm going to make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I'm going to defeat all your enemies. Complete victory for the Messiah. This was well known to be a messianic psalm. And yet Jesus points out, David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? They believed you could never be greater than your descendants, your, your ancestors. That the father was always greater than the son, and yet here's David, the great, 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 many times over grandfather of the Messiah, and yet he's calling him my Lord. Must be on a much higher level than even David himself. And so at the end of the day, after taking on Jesus on what they thought was their home court, with all the brightest minds of academia and politics and theology, the final score is Jesus eight, religious leaders zero. A blowout. Not even close. And while all the people were listening, Jesus says, see these guys who think they're really something? Beware of them. Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They love the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets, and they devour widows' houses, cheating them out of house and home. And then they go around making lengthy prayers. He says, these men will be punished most severely. Oh yes, in public, in the temple. He declares this after defeating them soundly. What is Jesus saying? He says these guys, they have no respect for any of God's will. And that's obvious because they turned a place that was supposed to be a house of prayer into a den of robbers. These guys ignore the prophets of God like John the Baptist. They don't care what's true. They just care what the latest political poll will say. That's how they answer questions. They've totally disrespected the owner of the vineyard, killing his prophets, and ultimately they're going to kill his son. These guys have neglected, they've defied their creator who stamped his very image on them. Jesus says, you ask me who I am. You ask me what gives the authority to do these things. He says, look, I'm smarter than you guys. I know the scriptures better than you guys. I'm more popular than you guys. I'm the guy who John the Baptist, the messenger sent from God, I'm the guy who he came to testify about, the guy he came to prepare the way for. I'm the guy who when King David got a vision of me, all he could do was fall to his knees and say, my Lord. He says, I'm the son. 
You guys think you're really something. You guys think you're walking around here, you're like, you own the place. That can't be possible because I own the place. You think this is home court advantage for you? This is not your home court. This is my father's house. This is my house. This is my place. And I'm showing everyone today who I am and who you are. I am the son. So what are you going to do about it? He's calling them down. And that question, that I'm the son and what are you going to do about it? It still lingers for us today. What are you going to do about it? Will you reject him like the religious leaders? Or like David, will you fall down on your knees and say, my Lord? That's the, the message of Luke 20. Fun passage, man. Okay, next time, Jesus is going to teach his biggest teaching we've got in Scripture on this little thing called the end of the world. A lot of predicted prophecy coming up. Yeah, God, you don't want us to shut our brains off when we come to you, but you are the God of truth, the God of wisdom. Thank you, God, for sending your Son. Thank you for your patience, Lord, how patient you've been with us. And God, I, I pray for anybody here who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ yet, that they would do so, that they would be one of those people worthy of the resurrection at the end of the age. They would live eternal life with you there in heaven, God. And... Um, <clears throat> I pray that you would give us a deeper appreciation and understanding of Jesus as we reflect on passages like this and the ones to come. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.